is, yeah, yeah, about a month, month and a half ago, somewhere in there. Yeah, like, yeah, all right. Uh, about a month and a half ago, I did a survey on a Sunday morning, and I asked how many of you wanted to have a Christmas series starting the week after Thanksgiving? And like three people raised their hands. And then I asked who wanted to have Christmas carols as part of worship starting the week after Thanksgiving. And like half of you raised your hands. And so I wanted to let you know that I heard your, your, your cry. And I've done the exact opposite, okay? So this week, I know what you really meant as part of that informal survey. Um, I know that you really meant that you wanted to kick off a Christmas series today and you wanted to hold off on singing Christmas carols as part of worship until December 17th which is what we will be doing at Praise Assembly, because I know that's what you really meant to say. I heard you and disregarded what you had to say, is what I'm saying. Okay, so, but as part of that, so here's, here's, here's the thinking behind it. So uh, Christmas is the 25th, that's new. And the 24th is a Sunday, which means Christmas Eve is a Sunday. The week before is the 17th. We're going to have a choir special on the 17th. Uh, that Christmas Eve is going to be a special service. And so that gives me three weeks to do like a Christmas series. And I always kind of feel like the week after Thanksgiving is the seed of Christmas. Right? It's like the beginning of the Christmas season. How many of you already have your Christmas trees up? This is what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. It's Christmas season. You walk into any store anywhere in Springfield or around the United States, and it will be Christmas. You'll hear Christmas music on the radio. You'll see displays that are all Christmas-oriented. Most of you, some of you, have your Christmas trees up, and decorations are already in process. It is the Christmas season. You've started shopping for Christmas. Um, We've already, at our house, started receiving packages in for Christmas. The kids are like, what's that package? You don't need to know. You know, this is that time of year. And so it's okay that I understand what you really meant. And so we're going to kick off our Christmas series. Even even I do see this as the seed in spite of the fact that it's still November and in spite of the fact that it feels like September outside. 70 degrees today. In spite of that fact, today is the beginning of the Christmas series. And so as part of that, I'll tell you where we're going to end up today. We're going to end up end today by reading the Christmas story. Okay, it's always nice to know where you're going. So that's where we're headed. Um, But that's not where we're going to start. I want to start by telling you that I don't, I rarely make promises to Claire and Asher. I I, I try not to make promises regularly to Claire and Asher. Um, And the reason for that is my interpretation of Matthew chapter 5 verses 33 through 37. I'm just going to read the last verse today, Matthew 5, 37, which says, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. My my interpretation of that whole passage and what Jesus is saying there in Matthew is essentially this. That when I have to add an oath or a vow or a promise to my word, that means that my word has gotten watered down. So what I, how I interpret what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus is saying, just let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. If I have to tell my kids, listen, this is the case, I promise. 
The only reason why I would add that promise on there is that I don't think that they would believe me if I just said that was the case, right? So if my word has gotten watered down, it's made, been made worthless or something, then I might have to add in a pinky promise or, a, or, or I promise, I promise this is the case. And so that's how I interpret that. And that's why I hear Jesus saying, just let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Be people of your word and you'll never even have to use the word promise. But I have made promises to my kids. And I was trying to add them up and figure out how many. And I believe, because I've really tried to live by this aspect of this, I, I've probably made three or four promises to my kids. And the, the, one of the promises that I made was that I would never, never tell a story to my kids or tell a story to you about my kids without their permission. Okay. I would never use them as a sermon illustration without getting them to sign off on it first. And the reason for that is this. If all goes well, and there's no guarantees, but if all goes well, then they'll grow up in this church. They'll be in kids' church in this church. They'll become preteens in this church. And then they'll become youth, part of the youth in this church. And then hopefully they'll become young adults in this church. That's, that's what I hope would happen. And if that's the case, then if I tell stories on them regularly, because most of the time the stories are embarrassing for them, because kids are like fodder for sermon illustrations. Like you can just mine them for all their worth and you can just keep going. And so, and so if I do that, then boy, they, they'll never know what's been told on them. Like, if you go back there today and, and you say something that was based on a conversation I had with my daughter, like, Saturday, and I haven't prepared her for that, boy, that could be devastating for her, right? And so I want her, her to trust me, and, and I want them to, to expect and know that this is a safe place for them, too, okay? So, so I've just made them the promise that I will never tell a story on a Sunday morning without getting them to sign off on it, Okay? And the reason why I did that was for accountability. Because quite honestly, I forget things. And a lot of times when I'm doing studies and I'm preparing a message, if, I, if I'm working in, away from the family or whatever, a lot of times it'll just come up. And if I don't have that accountability of knowing that I've set in my mind, I've said the word, I've promised that I will never tell a story without them. So it's a matter of me saying, this is something I'll be accountable to. I've said, I, I promise this, it's, 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 I'm not flippant with this word. I've said, I will not tell this story without. So I'm limiting myself because of the fact that I'm a limited being, right? Because of the fact that I won't remember it if I don't, I've said it in order to keep myself accountable. So I made that promise to them. That was the first promise. I also made another promise to them, well, specifically to Clara on Friday, and I did get her permission to tell this story. And really what it comes down to is the fact that I hate Shopkins. Does anybody in here know what Shopkins are? I am so unbelievably sorry. Shopkins are the worst thing ever invented. My family, well, my family has a genetic issue. It comes through my wife, and it's called collecting. If you come to my house and you walk in the door, you, all you need to do is see the fiesta ware displayed, see the mid-century modern furniture across the house, 
see the board games everywhere, and you'll know that my family, and specifically certain members of my family, have an issue with collecting, okay? And it's, it's, she comes by it honestly. Her father has this issue. Her mother has, I mean, everybody has this issue. And, and now, every time I take my daughter to the doctor, my son to the doctor, I said, no, are you noticing any collecting or anything? Just want to know. Anyways, okay. So uh, Clara, somewhere along the way, went to a thrift store and picked up a couple Shopkins. If you don't know what Shopkins are, they're these little figures that are about this big. They're made of plastic, and they're worthless, like a penny a piece. I'm sure they make these things for, but they sell them for much more than that. It's based on a TV show, which, if at all possible, keep your kids from ever watching that TV show, because the entire TV show is essentially a commercial for the Shopkins, Okay. But these are just not ordinary toys, they're collector's items. They're collector's items because they give you a piece of paper with it, and every year they release new Shopkins. It's the never-ending thing. And every year new Shopkins come out, and on this paper they'll tell you whether this is a normal Shopkin, they call it a common. They have a rating system for how rare the Shopkin is. They have commons, they have rares, they have ultra-rares, and then, I know, limited editions, and then they have special editions. There's at least five different rating systems, or maybe six if I'm forgetting one. Now, I've come up with my own rating systems for Shopkins based on how much they hurt when you step on them. So we have pain, lots of pain, cuss word, and string of expletives, okay? So, but I, I know that and Friday, I'm, my daughter has received multiple ones that are not just the ultra rares, but they're limited edition. And on this paper, I love it. <laughs> Depending on how rare it is, they have the how many dollar signs it is, which is such... Anyways, okay, so she has several limited editions that are color changers if you put them in the freezer. So Friday, <laughs> this is what I deal with, right? So... Anyways, Friday, we were with family all day, and it was a long day, long day, long day. And we come to the end of it, and it's time for bed, and they've brushed their teeth, and they're getting ready to get in bed, and Claire goes, where are my two limited edition Shopkins? And I went, oh, no. And she said, they're missing. Full-on meltdown. It's over. The Shopkins are missing. They're limited edition. They're color changers. These are the best Shopkins ever invented. And she is missing them. And it's Friday night, and it's been a long day, and bedtime was two hours ago, and we're still trying to get her ready for bed, and she can't do it because she's just lost it. And I know a couple things. I know that if she goes to sleep, she will feel much better in the morning and be much more prepared to find the Shopkins. I also know that if she goes to sleep, I get to go to sleep. <laughs> so, I said, Clara, we will look for the Shopkins tomorrow. <laughs> Clara, I promise you, we will find, search for, and find those Shopkins tomorrow, promise. And that was like the one time when I broke my little thing where I said, I, I promise, in spite of the fact that I don't want to, because I needed sleep. Okay? These are the ways I make promises. I make promises because I'm a limited being. And I want to further limit myself for accountability. 
I also make promises because I'm tired and I want to go to bed. You know, God makes promises too. In fact, in Scripture, we have somebody counted, and there's really different estimates of how many, but somewhere around 7,487 promises God has made to man. On top of that, there's another uh, two promises that God the Father made to God the Son. There are 991 promises that one man has made to another man, or humanity, one person to another person. 290 promises are made by people to God. Another 28 promises are made by angels. One promise is made by a, a man to an angel. Another eight promises are made by Satan. When you add them all up, it's over 8,000 promises. Of those 8,000 promises that you find in Scripture, 85% of them were made by God to men. Our God is a God who makes promises. And when you think about Christmas, when I think about Christmas, I really think of it as the consummation of the reality of the execution of God's promise being made known and being revealed. And so for our Christmas series this week, or this year, we're going to do a three-week series, and it's called The Promise. And when we talk about God's promise I think sometimes we think God's promise is just the words that are spoken, but there's so much more to it. In fact, I've broken it up and I've just made this up, so I'm not sure that these words are the best words for it, but what I've got, the vow, the vigil, and the amen. The vow, the vigil, and the amen, that God makes the initial promise, he speaks the words, he plants the seed, and you've got the wait, the vigil, and then you've got the amen the execution, and all glory being turned back to God. So today we're going to start with the vow. And so if you would, grab your Bibles this morning and open them up to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is the first promise, the first vow that God makes concerning uh, Christmas, the first kind of seed that you see where he makes this promise regarding Christmas. Some people think that it's the first promise in Scripture. I think there's a couple things that could probably qualify as promises prior to this. But in chapter 3, verse 15, this is right after Adam and Eve fall. This is right after they sin and they fall away from God. And as part of this, God curses the serpent, which is, of course, an image of Satan. And as part of this curse over Satan, he reveals the seed of the promise. And that is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Here's what it says. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This vow, this promise that God starts right here, this initial seed of this promise is then worked out throughout the rest of Scripture. In fact, some people consider this vow from God to mankind to be the core of Scripture, like, like that everything else is then these words worked out through time. Certainly, this vow is like one of the most important in Scripture. In fact, much later, like you see these things kind of grow and take, take uh, shape, but if you go much, much later in Scripture, over in Romans chapter 16, verse 30, you don't need to turn, verse 20, you don't need to turn there because I've got it and it's going to be up on the screen. 
Here is much later, after Jesus Christ has come, after he's been crucified, after the church is going and growing, here's what the promise is there, where the promise is at. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, here's the promise. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So what started as he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel now becomes after God or after Jesus Christ has triumphed over Satan, the outworking of that is that the church continues that on. It carries it on. We trample on the head of Satan. He's been defeated, but then we continue that process until the God of peace will finally crush Satan under our feet through the word of our testimony, through those things. So, so we see this initial seed of a promise much later is worked out throughout the church. It's still in action. It's still going on. So what we're saying is this, that really the entire Bible is the outworking of this uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 vow. And when we talk about Christmas, this is the seed of that vow. And when God speaks this, It's not about him limiting himself. It's not about the fact that he is limited. He's not limited by time or space. He's not trying to make himself accountable. And he's certainly not trying to get Adam and Eve to go down to bed in order that he can take a nap. There's something else that God is doing at the very beginning of humanity in the history of humanity as he's planting this seed. And that's what I want to look at, this vow and what it looks like as a seed that grows. Because here's the thing, God's vows are the seed of future fulfillment. And so when we look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, even as you read this, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and uh, her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. When God speaks that, I believe that there's an action that's actually taking place, that the seed is planted that begins to grow, right? But here's the thing about seed, and it sounds really very simple to say right at the beginning that God's, God's vows are the seed of future fulfillment, but actually stop and look at that word seed, because you find it in this verse, it's that word offspring, the translation is, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your, your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a word that comes up again in the Old Testament. It comes up much later when, when God is making a promise to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, same kind of word comes up. Genesis chapter 22, verse 17 says, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of his enemy. And in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So the seed keeps coming up. Now here's the thing about the seed though. Is if you've ever seen a seed, it doesn't look like what you expect it to look like when it's done growing. Right? When Liz and I first moved into our house that we're in now, for us, this is a house that we expect to live in for many years. So when we were getting ready to move in, we thought, you know what we should do? We should plant fruit trees. That was five years ago. We still haven't planted fruit trees. (laughs) 
So we're five years later. And don't tell Liz, but for Christmas this year, I'm getting her some fruit trees that we're going to plant. Shh, it's a secret, okay? So, but we're going to plant those with the expectation, not that as soon as we plant those trees, that we're going to be able to take fruit off of them. We're not planting those trees thinking, well, if I plant the tree today, then it should be producing tomorrow. No, you don't plant the sapling. You don't plant the seed expecting to immediately be able to harvest from it. You put the seed in the ground. You plant the sapling in order that many years after you give it some time, that later on it will be producing. And if you ever take an acorn and you've never seen an oak tree, and you, I mean, I have tons of oak trees around my house and there are acorns everywhere. And as you pick up that acorn and you look at it in relation to the tree, wait, Acorns turn into oak trees, right? Okay, yeah, okay. Pretty sure that's what it is. So as you take that acorn and you look at the oak tree that will come of it, like, unless you know it to be the case already, there's no way you would think that would be it. Right? It looks nothing like it. It changes. And that acorn, when it's put in the ground, grows into something that expands in beauty and in complexity, and it becomes something so much more than it started as. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this. And in order to get there, we need to talk about Jesus at the, really the height of his ministry. When Jesus was at the height of his ministry, people were coming to him and Really, they were expecting him to be named as king, right? And they were celebrating the, really the inauguration of this new era, expecting that Jesus was going to become the king of the nation, deliver the nation, and all of those things. And right at the height of this ministry, as, as people are coming to him in this way, he says something just to let them know, first off, this is not what you think it is. This is just the seed of what will be. And he says in John chapter, uh, John chapter 12, verse 24, John chapter 12, verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Saying this is the beginning of the fulfillment. And what you're seeing now is just a seed of what will be, and that needs to die in order for this thing to reach its fulfillment. See, seed must be released to reach its fulfillment. Okay? Seed must be released to reach its fulfillment. Back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. What if, after God gave this seed of a promise, this initial vow, these, these words that he speaks. What if after he said that to Adam and Eve, they were to say, oh, well, okay, so my offspring will bruise the serpent's head, and then that'll bruise his heel. And they took that seed of a promise, and so then they're like, okay, Cain and Abel, let's go. And they take Cain and Abel out, and every time they see a serpent, they take the kid's foot and go smash on the thing's head. What if they even started a ministry going all around the world, smashing serpents' heads with their kids, who God has promised that they're, because it's their seed, it's their offspring, right? So what if they took the seed of the promise and then took that and clung to it and made it into something that God did not originally intend it to be? Okay, I'm still heading somewhere. Just hold on a second. 
What if they take the seed and rather than releasing it, they cling to it? Or what if Abraham had done the same thing? What if when God promised in Genesis chapter 17, verse 8, when he promised Abraham, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. What if Abraham took that and said, okay, you're going to give this land to Isaac. So he starts a military campaign, and he takes Isaac, four years old, and puts him on the front line. Why? Because God promised that Isaac would be the, the, the one who, who accomplishes these things. What if he takes the seed and clings to the seed instead of allowing it to be planted and become the promise that, and the fulfillment of the promise that God had in mind? I am convinced that this is the fundamental issue with the faith movement. When I first became a believer, man, I started listening to and watching Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagin. I have no idea why everybody in the faith movement's named Kenneth, but I was watching them regularly because I wanted something that was solid ground and I wanted to be able to stand on it. And it boy, sure seemed that way. But the older I've gotten and the more mature in the faith I've gotten, I've realized that really what they're doing is they're taking seed that is supposed to be planted and fulfilled the way God sees its fulfillment, and they're clinging to it. So they're holding in their hand decaying seed instead of planting it in the ground. The moment we put our expectations on the fulfillment of God's promise, and we say, this is what this promise needs to look like. That's exactly what we do. If we expect God to fulfill his promises a very specific way, we limit how he works. Okay? The fulfillment of God's promises are always more beautiful and more complex than the initial seed. Every time. So, when Abraham is promised that his seed will take Canaan, boy, that's when it becomes something totally different than it had. And isn't that what he did? Isn't that what Abraham did with Ishmael anyways? At first, he's like, okay, God makes this promise to me, but I'm too old, so there's no way that this could actually happen. The only way I could bring it about is if I take it into my own hands. And he had an ill-conceived, pun intended, attempt at trying to get it done on his own. And he short-circuited what God's plan was. And God needed to say, no, this is what I'm planning on doing. Okay, God's vows must be viewed from his vista. I love the letter V and any word that starts with the letter V. And so I'm not an alliteration guy, but when it comes to the letter V, if I can do it with the letter V, I'm going to do it. Because I like the word vista because it starts with V. You know, Microsoft almost ruined the word vista. But it's a great word. It means like the, it's like a panoramic view from a certain perspective. And God sees from a different vista than we do. Have you ever driven across New Mexico? And you're driving across New Mexico and it's desert. You're like, this is boring. And then you see off in the distance mountain ranges. And when you're driving through the desert, boy, it just looks like one big block of mountains. But then when you get closer, you see there's not just a block of mountains, that there's 
peaks and there's valleys. And it's much more complex than you thought. And then when you get into the mountains, it's much more beautiful than it was from afar. Now, from afar, boy, it just looked like a block. But when you're in it, you see how high the highest mountains are and how low the lowest valleys are. And it's much more beautiful and much more complex. Have you ever been reading Ezekiel and Isaiah or Isaiah or something like that? And as you're reading it, you're like reading a prophecy and you go, okay, is this about the first coming of Jesus or the second coming of Jesus? Right? Because a lot of times you're reading a prophecy in the Old Testament and you're like, I think this is about Jesus coming as a baby and, and living among us. But boy, it sure seems like he just came on the clouds. Which one is it? Is it the first coming of Jesus or the second coming? And the answer is yes. The reason why is Ezekiel and Isaiah were in the desert looking afar off in the distance, and for them, all the mountains look exactly the same. For them, from a long ways away, they see the big block of mountains, and they don't see the peaks and the valleys. But once you get into it, you see how much more complex it is, and you begin to recognize that this is a long process that God has been working on from the beginning of time. And so when we see the initial seed of God's promises, we need to recognize that it's got a long ways to go sometimes before it gets to where it will be. And we can't just cling to the seed, but we need to release it. Okay, so again, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, I promise. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34 is a verse that I used last week. It's that beautiful promise that we don't need to worry about tomorrow. Matthew chapter 6, verse 34 says, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now some people read this verse and they say, okay, God's got this. I don't need to worry because I know tomorrow I'm going to have it good. I know that tomorrow he's going to be in control just like he is today and he's going to continue to bless me just like he is today. So there's no need to worry about it. But then you read James chapter 4 verse 14 which says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Wait, what? So am I supposed to be worried about tomorrow? Because you're saying I might die. I'm a mist. That's what you just said. So should I worry about tomorrow or not? Like, should I be anxious about it? Or if you make the promise boy, it sure seems like you're going to take care of me and everything's going to be good and I'm going to live a long life and I don't need to worry about it. But then I read James 4.14 and it says, boy, not one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. We have no idea what's coming. So how do you reconcile those two things? Well, the answer is we may not be guaranteed tomorrow. We live without a promise of tomorrow, but with an absolute assurance of eternity. Okay, this is why I have life insurance. Because I do not know. I am not guaranteed tomorrow. I don't have a guarantee that I will live past today. But in the midst of that, I have such an assurance that my God is on the throne and that he is taking care of me and my family. So I make sure that I do my part, but then I release it to God. So here's what I'm saying by this. The initial thing that you see if you interpret it and just grab it and hold on to it and cling it to it, you might miss the actual fulfillment, which is 
much more beautiful, and much more complex. So the seed is all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And there, God promises to Adam and Eve, he says that your seed will, your seed will be, uh, will bruise his head, and he will bruise your seed's heel. This is the seed. And it's planted here all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And then it begins to grow. And it begins to expand. And I want to read to you the Christmas story. And the Christmas story I want to read is in Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. And really the reason for this whole series is based on a, a lecture that I, ha- I went to with Mike Bisking during the Faith and Arts and Conference at Evangel University about two months ago. And he was sharing about icon- iconography and some of those images that are tied together in religious art. And when you talk about the Annunciation, the angel coming and telling Mary that she's going to be with child, she's going to give birth to a boy, and that boy will be the savior of the world. When the angel is coming and telling her that, often an image that is tied to it is from Genesis chapter 22. It is the image of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. For years and years, artists saw these two images tied so closely together. And so I want to read for you Genesis chapter 22 this morning. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, Here I am, son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, on his, son, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by his horns. 
And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Isn't that the story of Christmas? The father who sacrifices his, his, his promised child. Isn't that the story of Christmas, that the Lord would provide the lamb himself? Isn't that the story of Christmas, that on this mount, the Lord would provide? And what's amazing about this to me is that Abraham was the first to get a little bigger picture of what this was going to look like. It started back in Genesis 3.15. He will bruise the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise his heel. And now here we are, 19 chapters later, and it expands. Because God himself is going to provide the lamb for the sacrifice. It gets more complex. It started as a seed, but it gets more complex and it grows. And Abraham was the first to see it. Why? Because he wasn't no, I mean, he had already learned his lesson, I think. He was no longer clinging so closely to the seed that he wasn't afraid, that he was afraid to release it. In Hebrews, it says that Abraham didn't know what was going to happen here, but he had faith. He had faith that if he would have actually killed Isaac, that God would have raised him from the dead. He didn't know what it was going to look like, but he still had faith. I know people who have, at various times in their life, felt like God promised them something. Like God spoke a vow. They're convinced that God said it. And they held to it so tightly that over time, they never saw it happen, but they clung to it, and clung to it, and clung to it. And because they never saw it in reality, walked away from the faith. That is one of the most devastating things. Because I believe God is saying, you need to let that seed go. Because it is decaying in your hand when it's supposed to be planted in the ground. When I first accepted Christ, I went to a conference, and I won't mention where the conference was, but I, I mean, I'm no longer, I'm like a believer no longer than like a, a month. And I go to this conference, and at the end of the message, I went down for prayer and just wanted to seek the Lord, and what did he want me to do with my life, and where was he going to take me? I'm, I actually have never shared this story with anyone outside of Liz. And while I was praying at the altar, Another person came down and started praying for me. Never met this person, never seen them again. This person began to prophesy over me. And I, I, at the time, I didn't know if it was God or not. But as they were prophesying, one of the things that they said, the gist of what they were saying was that the Lord was going to use me in order to help purify the bride for his coming. 
And when you're somebody who is new to the faith, someone prophesies over you in that way and says something along those lines, boy, that can go a lot of different directions. And for a while, it did a number on me. For about three years, I clung to that seed, and I had no idea what it was going to look like, but I clung to it, saying, God, if this is you, if this is you, you're going to do this. But I clung to it and thought I knew what that was going to look like. And about three years into being a believer, it really felt like God said to me one day, it's time for you to release that and let me fulfill it the way I want to. So here I am, 15, 16, 17 years later. And I look back, it's not what I would have originally envisioned. But boy, the reality of where I am today and what God has done in me and how he continues to work in my life and continues to work through me is way more complex and way more beautiful than what I originally envisioned. And if I would have held tightly to that seed, I don't think I ever would have seen the beginning of the fulfillment of that. So the gist of it is this. Hold loosely to seed and tightly to faith. Hold loosely to seed and tightly to faith. If you're in here and you would say, boy, I felt like God gave me a promise. That he gave me a vow. And I've been holding to that because I know I'm supposed to hold to the promises of God. But I've been holding to that and holding to that and holding to that. And I have yet to see it be fulfilled. Maybe it won't be fulfilled the way that you expect it to. But I promise you that if you release it back to God, that he will fulfill it the way he wants to. Welcome to the promise. Father, I thank you for your incredible promise.